Good morning. That really serves as an effective cue that means I really mean to start right now. Um, and you guys do good. You can see fear strike people's faces like, oh, he really thinks he's going to start. Um, it's good to be here. We get a lot fewer when we send the kids out, don't we? It's like we go from from just not a seat to find to all of a sudden all these empty seats. It's kind of a good thing. Got a lot of kids. It's fun. We are spending our first 10 weeks together. You'll have to forgive me. I'm going to be antsy all morning. I'm going to it's going to look like I'm about to move, but I'm talking into this microphone, which is really unusual for me. Usually it's on my face somewhere, and I'm free to roam around, and I can't roam. So every time I try to, you'll see me check myself, like, oh, no, no, I can't do that. This is going to be a weird morning for me. Bear with me. We're spending our first ten weeks together working through what we as elders have determined to be, or what we consider to be, the core truths of the Christian faith. Um, calling it foundations. We're doing this in order to issue a call for membership at the end of those 10 weeks for you to know what you what we think you need to believe in order to be a member of Providence Bible Church. So I want to encourage you, if you missed last week's message, please, um, the, it's posted on Facebook, it's posted on iTunes. You can come to me and say, Andrew, I'd really love to have it on a CD. And I can do that for you. However you need to get it, please get it and take a listen. I think that'll be great. Um, however you need it, we want to we want to equip you with that. But I do want to say a quick word if this will work. This won't work. I think Josiah's got it. Um, I want to say a quick word about how we're doing this, the, the rubric within which we're doing this. Um, as members of the Western Church, and for you younger people, what I mean when I say Western Church is I mean the church that exists in the year 2013 that is the recipient of Western civilization. Western civilization, what happened is you had Rome was a big civilization, very powerful civilization, and civilization kind of split in Rome with the fall of Rome. Um, there's And there's Eastern civilization that, you know, basically took one path and Western civilization took another path, and that's the one that you learn about in high school. It's the one through the Enlightenment, um, through the Reformation. That's When I say Western, I mean us. The Western Church. Um, the Western Church has a tendency to be excellent at systematic theology. What that means is we're really good at sentences that explain what we think about things. We're, we love that stuff. Um, and I will confess, I'm really good at that. But when you're good at systematic theology, you can sometimes miss the forest for the trees. You can be really good about figuring out what you think about baptism. You can be really good at figuring out what you think about the substitutionary <laughs> substitutionary atonement. You can be really good at figuring those things out, but you miss the context. You miss the interrelationship of those truths. And so rather than trying to tell you, here's what we believe about bibliology, here's what we believe about 
theology proper. Here's what we believe about pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit, and I use it only because it's the funnest word in that whole list. Pneumatology. Pneuma is air. So a pneumatic tire. Anyway, um, pneumatology. Instead of doing that, we decided, what if we try to put it within this arc? Now, it, we found this arc because Jason Moore is a really timely guy. Um, he sent us a, or Jason Young, sorry, not Jason Moore. Jason, you don't get credit. Jason, you get credit. Jason Young sent us this sermon by Tim Keller. It was called uh, The Gospel and Postmodernism. And it's a great sermon. You should listen to it. Not instead of listening to me, but in addition to, please. If I see you put in your ear earphones, I'll know what's going on. The Gospel and Postmodernism. And Tim Keller repeats this as, as a good explanation of God's arc. What God is doing in history are these four words, these four distinct phases. You have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the, the arc of the story that God is telling in history. And we want to try to explain these core truths in the light of that arc. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So last week, Moon taught about the very earliest foundations. The stuff that you really can't talk about anything about Christianity without establishing. That is, that there is a God, we believe. We believe that he exists as one, but three, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and that he has chosen to express himself in the Bible. Those are kind of three foundational things without which we really can't go any further. We have to establish those things prior to being able to talk about what we're going to talk about today or what we'll talk about next week. So Moon covered those three last week, and this week... We're going to cover the creation and fall sections of our statement of faith. I've titled the sermon in my notes, Who Are We and What Is Our Problem? And that's what we're going to cover. So if you came in here this morning going, what's my problem? I, today I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Maybe not exactly. Before we launch in, I, I'd love to pray for us. So let's pray and then we'll launch in to, and we'll be in the early parts of Genesis. Father God, we love you. We long for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long to find our place as your people. God, like Jason said this morning, we long for your spirit to work here. God, amaze us as we dig in, as we see what your word has to say about sin about mankind and where we are without the gospel of your son, Jesus. God, work in your, in your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week's subject matter, I'm lucky, um, or I'm providentially blessed if you prefer. Uh, I have an aunt who jumps all over you anytime you use the word lucky, and so it's programmed in my head. Can't say lucky. I'm lucky to have the creation and fall portion because it's narratively condensed. It's the one section of of this process where really pretty much everything happens within about three chapters.
Avengers. And we're going to read all of... No, we're not. Uh, I wish we could. I really wish we had time. I've struggled to, to try to package this well for you. Genesis 1 and 2. If you haven't read them recently, please read them this week. Genesis 1 and 2 are the biblical account of creation. The God that Moon taught you about last week, the God who exists as 1 and 3, in perfect joy decided to extend his joy by creating the universe. And you've got these beautiful accounts. Genesis 1 is is magical. Um, it's actually what I taught to the little kids last week. We read through Genesis 1. It's this magical thing where God says, let there be, and there is. And at the end of each day, he looks at it, and it's good. It's good. So this happens again and again over six days. He says, let there be light, and there's light says, let the waters above and the waters below be gathered together and separated. And they are. He says, let there be land, and there is. And let there be plants, and let there be animals, and creepy crawly things. And it happens. It's, it's amazing. It's beautiful language. You should totally read it this week, please. It's beautiful. God speaks his, attention, in, speaks his intention, and things happen. He speaks, and it happens. Each day he pronounces his work to be good. Now my goal is not to try to solve any controversy over creation and evolution. Um, it's, it's not our intention in, in what we're accomplishing. Uh, the elders of Providence Bible Church, I'll say this, the elders of Providence Bible Church would all, um, at least that the last time I checked, would all hold to a seven-day creation. Um, but we would also acknowledge that there are brothers and sisters who love God, um, and who ha who hold to a different explanation for that. Uh, we don't agree with them, but as long as they hold that God is responsible for creation and that Christ was a historical man, we'd be comfortable having them fellowship with us. That wouldn't be a problem. Um, but what the Bible records in the beginning of Genesis is seven days. This happens, this happens, this happens. God declares, and there is. And it's good. And that's really foundational to what we're going to talk about in depth today. Because we're going to talk about what happened to change it from being good. So you have to first establish it was good. It was harmonious. It was, it was great. Man was created. In Genesis 2, man is created and he's given a job. And he's created in God's image, which is amazing. Um, and that's another thing we're, that we won't settle today. Exactly what does it mean that man is created in God's image? Um, there are lots of ways to look at that. And um, and I would affirm that it's true. Mankind is created in God's image. Um, but if we want to dice that, we'll have to do it on another day. Created in God's image. Created to rule to subdue the earth, to be, to be fruitful and to multiply. So God's plan at the beginning is the earth is created, it's good, he creates mankind, and he tells them to populate the earth, to multiply, and he gives them one command. There's this one tree in the garden. Don't eat it. 
Don't eat it. Romans tells us a little bit about what we can learn from creation. And it's significant um, because what it affirms is that God is evident in creation. This is the very beginning of Romans. Romans chapter 1, um, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now Paul is building a case against everybody, um, why everybody is, is um, condemned apart from Christ. But what he affirms there is that in creation, when you look outside, when you watch the sunrise, and I, there's been beautiful sunrises this week. From my house, they've been amazing. When you see that, you are seeing, it's reflecting the invisible attributes of God. So creation, in and of itself, reflects the invisible attributes of God. Um, Paul says that, and, and that's something that we can learn from creation. So into this beautiful creation in Genesis 3 comes a problem. Before we dig into the beginning of Genesis 3, I just want to read for you. This is the actual paragraph in the member in the Providence Bible Church member confession of faith. Um, this is what members of Providence Bible Church affirm that they believe about mankind and sin. We believe that though the creation was declared good by God, because of Adam's disobedience, mankind fell and became universally sinful in both nature and practice, thus falling under the righteous judgment and eternal wrath of God. Apart from the work of Christ, sinners at death enter into eternal conscious torment. With that backdrop, let's read Genesis 3, 1-8. Would you stand with me while we read God's Word? I'll read it to you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the gardens. Thanks. You can be seated. So what happened? A serpent sneaks into the garden. 
or he's already there. We don't really know. It's just since he's kind of ominous and and bad, uh, sneaks sounds like the right word. Serpent sneaks into the garden. God had given mankind one command. Everything is good. There's one rule. Don't eat this tree. The Bible doesn't tell us how long they've been in the garden. It's not really clear about um, about exactly what the timeline looked like. Uh, but it does seem like Adam and Eve probably hadn't been there long just because of the immaturity with which they respond to this. Um, but that's speculation. So the serpent comes to the garden and he seeks to cast doubt and to deceive. Now, Scripture elsewhere tells us in Revelation that the serpent is Satan. Um, that identifies that. The serpent comes and he says to Eve, Did God really tell you not to eat the fruit of any of these trees? And Eve is careful. Now, it's interesting, Adam apparently is there with her. Adam's there with her, but Eve, Eve's got the one-on-one going. Did God really tell you not to not to eat of any of these trees? And Eve's careful. She says, we can eat of any of the trees except for this one. Not only should we not eat from it, we shouldn't even touch it because we'll die. Adam's there. He doesn't correct. He doesn't say, well, that's not exactly what happened. What God said was don't eat it, not don't touch it. He doesn't say, hey, why is this serpent talking to us and, and trying to cast doubt? He doesn't intervene at all. The serpent challenges Eve. He paints a false picture of God's reasons for telling them not to eat of that tree. And he just kind of suggests, hey, maybe, just maybe, God's trying to keep you from being like him. You could be like God if you just eat that fruit that he told you not to eat. And Eve looks, and the tree is pretty. The fruit looks like it's good food. If I eat it, the serpent says I'll be wise like God. Who doesn't want to be wise? And she decides, she chooses, she volitionally propels herself, if you want to get really deep, towards the tree, grabs the fruit, gives some to Adam, they eat, and you're naked. You're naked. We need to hide. Let's hide. And they do. How does that happen? How does that happen? I want to tell you that there is a tension there. For all of us. You get to choose where you want to keep that tension. Is God the author of sin? Scripture elsewhere makes really clear that nothing happens that God doesn't ordain. Nothing. Isaiah talks about how God, he is He is the one God. Nothing that he proclaims can be stopped. Everything he proclaims comes to pass. That is true. So then how does sin come into the world? God has to permit it. Romans 8. I'll turn over there and just read you the relevant portion. 
Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, this had to be somehow in God's plan. Scripture's really clear, though, that mankind is responsible for its choices. That's the tension. That's the part where there's not a clear, and here's exactly how this works out. It says that God ordains, and it comes to pass, and it says that when mankind chooses sin, we are freely choosing it, and we're grabbing it. The other things that aren't clear in the passage is, where did Satan come from? We know there's a few allusions in Scripture to angels who fall, who decide that they want what they want more than what God wants for them. Um, but there's not a real clear, here's where this happened in this timeline. It just, it happened. Um, we're not given super clear answers. But what you do need to take away from that is that God is certainly sovereignly in control. And mankind, Adam's choice is Adam's choice. Eve's choice is Eve's choice. Your choice is your choice. What were the consequences for Adam and Eve? I read Genesis 4 this morning. Um, Genesis 4 has some of the worst consequences for Adam and Eve. First, they're thrown out of the... Well, they're not thrown out of the garden immediately. God comes and very graciously says, Adam, Eve, where are you? We're hiding. Because we know we're naked. God says, did you eat of the, of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat? And they say, well, Adam says, it was this woman you gave me. The, Eve says, it was the serpent. The serpent says, yeah, I did it. Um, God curses the serpent. Curses Eve. Curses the earth through Adam. And it is tragic. It is heartbreaking. Childbirth is going to become very difficult. Labor, toil in the fields is going to become very difficult. Death comes. Death is terrible. Death comes. The earth breaks. Adam and Eve find out just how painful this is pretty quickly in Scripture's timeline. The next story is Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel is this tragic story of two brothers, Adam and Eve's first two sons, who, apparently, who are giving sacrifices. And Cain brings sacrifice from his work in the fields, and Abel brings a sacrifice from his work with the sheep, and God looks with favor on Abel's sacrifice and does not look with favor on Cain's sacrifice. And that's really that's what the text gives us. There's not a lot else there. Um, and Cain is angry, and he strikes down his brother. So Adam and Eve go from eating this fruit to watching their son die pretty quickly. And it's tragic. It's heartbreaking. Death has come. Murder has come. Things are broken. Things are not the way they ought to be. There are consequences, though, in that fall for all of us. And I want to talk to you about two things that come from systematic theology 
but I want to help you to see them hopefully in that arc and help you to see them in your life. First is original sin. Um, original sin, when we say that, um, it's the idea that Adam's sin is counted for us all. Um, and that comes in Scripture primarily, but not only, in Romans 5. I'm going to read verses 12 through 14 to you. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the tra transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Through one man, sin came into the world. One action, Adam. And scripture's really clear. Uh, if you've ever heard people fight over whose fault it was, Adam or Eve, it doesn't really matter. Scripture's really clear that Adam carries the shoulders, the what shoulders what went down there. Uh, he is the responsible party throughout scripture. Adam's sin judicially is counted in God's eyes for us all. We have all were born in sin. This is all through scripture. Um this is in places like Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Um, it, it's in a lot of other passages. It's We are all, from birth, counted sinners with Adam. We're judicially that way. And unfortunately, that's not the only consequence. The other consequence that we see coming out of that um, is this big phrase that, I don't know if it's the best way to say it, but it's a good way to say it. Um, total depravity. Now, what does that mean? That sounds awful. Total depravity. Uh, here's a helpful definition that was not written by me. It was written by the guys at Desiring God. Man's Total depravity is man's natural condition apart from any grace exerted by God to restrain or transform them. So let me read you some passages. Jeremiah 13.23 is a funny verse. Um, you may have heard it before quoted as one of those, wait, is that really in the Bible? Let me read it to you. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. So can a leopard change his spots? Somebody answer that for me quick. No. And Jeremiah says, So you, who are accustomed to doing evil, can do good. There's a whole bunch of others. Romans 3.23, which if you've ever been in Awana or a program like it, you've probably learned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 7.18 For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Romans six seventeen and 18. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You picking up a theme? Slaves to sin, dead in our trespasses. John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Scripture again and again talks about how we are dead in sin, how we're unable to do anything but sin. So when we use the word total depravity, what we're referring to is the fact that mankind... Each of us, each of you individually, is given over to sin apart from Christ. You want to sin. You're born wanting to sin. What don't we mean? Let me give you two things that are not intended by those words. One, we don't mean that you automatically choose the very worst thing to do. That's, that's often thrown up as like, a, well, that can't possibly be true because look, I didn't choose to murder my family or whatever, uh, you know. I must be an okay guy. That's true. You're not automatically going to choose the very worst thing. Um, it also doesn't mean that a sinner never does anything that appears good. It happens all the time. It happens around us. You see people pour out money and care for people who are hurting, um, and it appears good. And they appear totally lost. How is that possible if people are totally depraved? Well, that's not exactly what we mean. What do we mean? We mean, to start, that all have sinned in Adam. So that original sin, that counts for all of us. Um, so from birth, you are given over to wanting to sin. Now, if you've had children, you've probably seen that pretty quick after birth, they start to act like they're, like they're pretty selfish, um, like they're pretty given over to do what they want to do means that total depravity also means that when our natural actions appear good, they're driven by our replacement of God's place as sovereign king with something else that we're making the king in our lives. Ken posted this quote from Tim Keller this week on his website. I'm just going to read it. When we turn good things into ultimate things, we are, as it were, spiritually addicted. If we take our meaning in life from our family, our work, some cause or some achievement other than God, those things enslave us. We have to have them. A life not centered on God leads to emptiness. Building our lives on something besides God only hurts us if we don't get the desire, not only hurts us if we don't get the desires of our hearts, but also if we do. Few of us get all our wildest dreams fulfilled in life. Therefore, it is easy to live in the illusion that if you were successful, wealthy, popular, or beautiful, you'd finally be happy and at peace. That's not true. It just isn't so. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's a radical indictment, according to John Piper, of all natural virtue that doesn't flow from a heart humbly relying on God's grace. 
total depravity when we say that. What it ultimately means is that we're all given to choose sin. We're all given to choose sin. Let me give you an, an illustration. If you take a horse and a dog, put them side by side, and prepare for them each a plate. And on each plate, put a beautiful juicy steak and put some apples and some carrots. Put, put those plates down in front of the horse and the dog. What's the horse going to eat? It's going to eat the apples and carrots. How many times is he going to do that? Every time. What's the dog going to eat? The steak. How often is he going to do it? Every time. We are that way with our inclination towards ourselves, towards serving our own desires, towards choosing sin. We're that way. And we want it. It's not that we're being forced to choose it. It's that it's so ingrained in us that we want it. So when we choose to sin, which we do, all of us, throughout our lives, it's because we want to choose to sin. We're doing what comes naturally. We're like the dog. We see a steak and we're like, I'm going to eat steak. Every time we're like the horse. I see apples and carrots. I'm going to eat apples and carrots every time. I am naturally inclined to it. I just love it. I'm just going to do that. I'm going to choose to be self-serving. I'm going to choose to put myself first. I'm going to choose to put everyone else way behind me. I'm going to do that. You're going to do that. That's our natural inclination. We all operate that way. We want to choose it. What's more? It means that even on our best day, we're given to sin apart from Christ. Even on our best day, apart from Christ, we're going to choose what we want. And if what we want is anger and immorality and hatred and gluttony and lust, we're going to do it. It's our natural inclination to choose to sin. Maybe not to choose to sin the very worst way that we can choose to sin, but to choose to sin. It's our natural inclination. Our natural state is to spurn God's authority as Savior, Creator, and King of all. We are dead in sin. You may have heard the analogy um, that salvation can be seen as being kind of like a man drowning, and somebody comes along and throws him a life preserver. And all that man has to do is, you know, you, I've heard that analogy used, if you just reach, well, I, what I'm telling you in this part is that you can't reach on your own. You're so given to sin, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses. You have no ability to push yourself towards God on your own. Because instead, you'll choose sin. You'll choose sin every time and you'll love it. You will try to convince yourself that you're content. It will be your natural inclination. We're dead in our sins. That's what total depravity means. Dead in our sins. What do you do with that? How should you respond? There is appropriate holy grief. We ought to mourn what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve chose sin. Through one man's sin, death came to all men, all of us. At the same time, we should grieve our sin. 
what we choose to do. This is not what the world preaches, by the way. What the world preaches is that you need to accept yourself, that you're okay, that you just need to fulfill the desires of your heart. The gospel is the hope the world needs. We'll get there in a minute. I need to not get ahead of myself. We should grieve the broken relationship between God and mankind. There is a gulf that our sin, that Adam's sin, puts between us and God. There's enmity. God hates sin. There's wrath. We should grieve it. Because of our sin, because of our depravity, we cannot commune with God. We cannot receive what He has for us on our own. We'll choose sin every time. We should grieve the broken earth. Tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, murder, mayhem, anarchy. These are not the things we were created for. They're not. Global warming, by the way, shouldn't surprise us if it, if it happens to be the case. How many other ways is the world broken? Of course. It's broken. It needs to be made anew. But the story doesn't end with grief. Here's where the story ends. The story ends with hope. This is why the gospel is so powerful. God's story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, is much better than the story the world wants to tell you about yourself. The story the world wants to tell you about yourself is that you are good enough, that you need to self-actualize, that you need to find the way to be a healthy human being, and whatever that means for you, it's okay. That's the story. You're told to not be ashamed. You're told that you're enough, that you need to serve your desires. And if you do, you'll be content. You will never be content. How many people do you know like that? Do you know some? I know some. I have some in my family. And they are forever looking for things to get better as they serve their basest desires and things never, ever get better. They can fake it for a while. Sometimes. Sometimes I don't even get to fake it for a minute. God's story is better. It starts out with one actor, God. Three in one, creating the world like we talked about. Creating the world and having a plan to display His glory to every being ever. Not just the ones on the earth, by the way. Every being ever. There's this ugly blight on creation. Sin it starts in the garden when Adam, the first man, stood by while his bride was tricked, lied to, questioned by the serpent. She picks this fruit, and Adam takes some too, and they eat it. And sin comes to all of us so that our natural inclination is to sin. That man, Adam, chose sin with his bride, and he chose it for all of us, and we've been reaping the benefits ever since. Many years later, though, the second Adam came. God in the flesh, born miraculously, with no sin nature like you and me, born to humble Mary and Joseph, raised in tumultuous Israel, ministering through the countryside, Tempted to sin, tried, and not sinning? 
obeying on our behalf, perfectly obedient, without sin, he who knew no sin went to the cross and was made sin for us. And he crushed the serpent's head, given the same opportunity. He crushed the serpent's head. And you know who he did it for? He did it for his bride. So when Adam stood by, did not intervene, didn't say, hey, don't listen to this serpent, didn't cut off the serpent's head, Christ crushes the serpent's head on behalf of his bride. On the third day, Christ rose again, appearing to many, and he ascended and sent his spirit. He calls mankind to repent from sin, to believe, to be saved. If you will repent and believe, you'll find your place as part of his bride. You may be a hand, you may be a foot, you may be the eyes, but you will be part of the way that he is choosing to operate in the world today. It's not about you anymore. It's about Christ working in you and through you. So if you don't know Jesus, or if you do, if you have a broken heart or broken dreams, the gospel is the solution. It's the best story to resolve all those tensions, to help you to see that God has something much greater than what the world can offer you. You have a Savior who came to rescue you, to give you meaning, not just in a self-actualized, I can serve my needs, my wants sort of a way, but in a cosmic destiny sort of a way. The relationship between you and God can be restored through Christ. One day he's coming back for his bride, the church, and he will complete the restoration. And that's what the rest of these ten weeks is going to talk about, is what happened at the cross, what happened through Christ, what God is now doing in the church, what God is now doing in your life, and what it will look like when he comes again to restore the heavens and the earth. It's a better story than the one the world wants to tell you. And the best part about that story is that it's true. So grieve your sin. Grieve Adam and Eve's sin. It's true. We're all inclined towards sin. Naturally, we want it. We want to sin. But if you know Jesus, he's removed that from you. He's made you new. And he's telling a much better story than the one that the world will tell you. I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing another song. We'll be done. God, our Father, we are so thankful that you did not leave us in our sin. That your plan is greater that you have more for us. That you want to display your glory towards everyone through your work, through Christ on the cross, saving your church. God, we ask that we would be properly grieved, that we would mourn properly, but also that we would be people who celebrate, who proclaim the good news so that all may hear what Christ has done for them.
so that everyone can hear. That they're not alone, that they're not they're not left in their sin, that they're not abandoned, that they're not random. God, you give us meaning. Because you've planned everything. God, we ask for your will to be done throughout the world and here in southern West Virginia as you transform your body, as you draw us closer to Christ and closer to you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Without him, we'd be lost, stuck, still inclined towards sin, wanting to sin, choosing sin. Thank you for freeing us from sin. In Jesus' name, amen.
That's our prayer this morning to, to come to you as we are, but expect to be changed by your spirit. Pray that you would do that work in our hearts individually and as a body as we unite together around these truths and, and around what you've accomplished on our behalf. We celebrate that this morning. And so thankful for the opportunity to, to be the church and to, to love each other and to, to encourage each other. Pray that will happen this morning as we continue to fellowship and, and share this meal together. Pray these things because of Jesus. Amen.